we pray together? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for uh, this another opportunity to uh, come before you and to uh, study your word in an academic setting. I ask, Lord, that as we discuss matters of great import for the life of the church together over the years, and as we discuss matters that are, uh, frankly, controversial, matters upon which some of us uh, will disagree, that we would, even as you have urged us over and over in your word, refrain from being quarrelsome, refrain from wrangling or foolish debates. Now, Lord, where we differ, may we all be apt to teach and teachable. May we deal gently. Lord, I pray that you'll help me to deal gently. And when people disagree with something I say, may they deal gently with me and with each other after class. Uh, for, Lord, we know that uh, you desire that we should come to the truth, but you also desire that your people be one, even as you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. Lord, teach us to love you and to love your truth, to love the gospel, the gospel of salvation, and the gospel that says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Lord, we thank you for that gospel, and we pray that um, even as we uh, delve into fine points at times, we would uh, cling to those central truths that are so precious and that are the abiding foundation of the church, which is God's household in this world. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever said, I wish God would drop an answer from the sky. I wish the Lord would just tell me what I should do next year. Where I should live, who I should marry, how many children I should have, what I should buy, how much money I should spend on it, what church I should go to, what school I should go to. Have you asked those questions? Have you said, Lord, just drop an answer from the sky? Well, here we are at a seminary. We may think, Lord, just drop an answer from the sky as to how we should run the church. What should the church do? Wouldn't that be great? If God would just drop answers from the sky. Well, uh, I guess I don't really say that. My wife says I wish God would drop an answer from the sky. Uh, I tend to say the same thing over and over in different ways to her, so she doesn't say it anymore because she knows what's coming. I say things like, now, you know, if God just dropped an answer from the sky, then where's the place for the Holy Spirit? Where's the place for gaining wisdom through Christian community? Where, uh, where would we learn patience and how would we learn discernment if God handed it all to us the way we hand it to our children? No, I can say it's, it's good for us not to get it from the sky because we develop character and insight by waiting. On the other hand, having said that, of course, I still want the answer to be dropped from the sky from time to time myself. How to run the church, that would be a good one. In fact, if there are any books in the Bible that drop an answer more or less from the sky, it would be First and Second Timothy and Titus come as close as anything to telling us simply how should we run the church. The pastoral epistles we, I began to introduce uh, toward the tail end of our last class, and uh, let, me, let me talk about them just a little bit, basic orientation, kind of picking up where we left off in our last class. Paul is writing, Paul the Apostle is writing to pastors, not exactly, pastoral epistles. That's not exactly what they are. He's writing to Timothy and Titus. Two letters to Timothy, one to Titus, to men who are aptly called apostolic delegates. That is to say, they are individuals to whom Paul has delegated his 
authority as an apostle, the authority and the right, responsibility, to organize the churches in ways that he would do it if he were there. He's not. Second Timothy, he's in jail. Um, at other times, he's simply in another place. He can't be everywhere watching all of his churches at once. And so the men that he most deeply trained in his uh, entourage, in his school, he sends out into churches in Crete and in Ephesus to do his work as if he were there. With his very authority, he goes. Now, Timothy and Titus are two very different men. It's important to uh, distinguish them just a little bit. Timothy was Paul's dear son, his child, his friend, younger than Paul. And there's a sort of a warmth and a language of love and affection there. Titus is also called uh, the true son. But Titus was, Titus seemed to have been a little bit maybe tougher. You know, Paul has to tell Timothy not to be timid and not to let anybody despise him for his youth. It seems like when some really difficult work was to be done, Titus got it. Do you know somebody like that in your church? When there's something really difficult, you go to so-and-so. When I'm given a really nasty job to do, sometimes I say, you know, I teach here at Covenant Seminary for free. It's this stuff that I get paid for. Titus was a little bit like that. Maybe he was a lot like that. When Paul had to send a stern letter rebuking the church at, Ephesus, at, sorry, at Corinth, he sent it by the hand of Titus, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 2 to 16 indicate. He also organized the collection for the Jerusalem church. He's also pastoring a church at Crete. Crete was a rough place. We'll talk about that in just a moment, see why Titus may have been there. Now, as apostolic delegates, they had a job to do. So that's the who, here's the what. Paul to Timothy and Titus. The what is um, to found the church, to establish the church, to defend the faith, morally and theologically to establish a pattern for the church as it was going to live its life over the succeeding generations. If the church was founded in the year 30 AD and a generation lasts 25 years, we're now toward the end getting ready for the 80th generation of the church. We could surround it off and say the church is about 80 generations old. And that's what he's establishing it for. So to pass it on generation upon generation pass on the truth and the right way of living in the church. Now, when and where? Who, what, when and where? Well, all three letters, most scholars believe, follow Paul's first imprisonment. The imprisonment that's described in Acts, the end of Acts, he's under house arrest, innocent of all charges, expecting to be released. It seems that he was. And then he does some more traveling throughout the eastern region of the Mediterranean, travels that are described somewhat in Timothy and Titus, in, in establishing the churches there. First Timothy is written to Timothy when he is in Ephesus. Shortly after Paul and Timothy had visited, Paul left and Timothy remained behind to conclude the unfinished business of rooting errors out of the church. First Timothy 1.3 says that one of his main jobs is to get rid of error in the church, theological error. And your reading in Fee comments on that at some length. Ephesus, of course, was a, a big church and a prominent church, a central church in its district, Ephesus. 
Second Timothy is written during a few years later during Paul's second imprisonment. If you read it carefully, it's not hard to see that Paul expects to die shortly. He expects to be executed. And he calls Timothy to his side, actually several times in chapter 1 and 2 and 4, before he passes. He's about to be poured out like a drink offering, he says. The third letter, Titus, is written while Paul is in Nicaragua. Nicopolis, chapter 3, verse 12 says that. That's a city in the central west coast of Achaia. Titus is laboring in Crete to finish the work of establishing a church there. In other words, Timothy is working in established churches, Ephesus. Titus is working in a new church, Crete. Now that work is hard, and maybe Titus is the right man for it. Paul says this in chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. As one of their own prophets has said... One of the Cretans' own poet prophets said this, All Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. Then he adds, their testimony is true. Now, in case you didn't know this, there's a thing called the liar's paradox. The liar's paradox goes like this. I am now telling you a lie. Now, if I tell you, this is a real old one. It's been around for hundreds of years before Paul was writing. If I tell you what I am now telling you is a lie... And it's true, then I'm not lying, therefore it's false. But if it's false, because I said I'm telling you a lie, then it's true. But if it's true, then it's false. And you kind of go on that way for a while. And some early Greek philosophers had fun with what they called the liar's paradox. Paul maybe is playing with that, with Titus. Maybe they're both educated men, have learned a little logic. But then he says to cut it off, by the way, it is the truth that they're always liars. Anyway, uh, Paul is telling... Titus, I know your work is difficult there in that city. Why does Paul write? Several reasons. The reading in Fee emphasizes that Paul is writing to correct doctrinal deviation. Chapter 1, verse 3 of 1 Timothy. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer in order to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversy rather than the work of God. So, no falsehood and no quarreling over trivia. No divisiveness and no doctrinal deviation. It's also true, however, and Fee does not emphasize this, and so I do want to emphasize it. Chapter 3, verse 15 says, uh, If I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now that wraps up, as I'm going to argue, a section that establishes the order of the church in three regions, three areas of the order of the church. Number one, the order of the church with regard to doctrine. That's chapter one. Number two, the order of the church with regard to male-female roles. That's chapter two. We'll talk about all this much more in detail. Chapter three the choice of and training of leaders. So it's to correct error, but it's also to establish proper conduct in the household of God. Those are the three purposes that he has in mind. I quoted to you at the tail end of the last class a crucial passage, which I'll mention to you again, and that is 2 Timothy 2.2. The things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men will be qualified to teach others. The things that you, Timothy, 
heard me. Here's Paul over here, generation one. Then we go to Timothy. You teach to reliable men, generation three. We'll be able to teach others. That's generation four. Now, as I said, we're getting close to the 80th generation. So the goal is not just to preserve the truth, but to get it on into the future as long as the church lasts. It's also important to realize that the, that the defense of the church and the right order of the church is not simply right doctrine. Fee is a great scholar. I, I had you read his pages because they're, they're, I think they're a wonderful introduction to the nature of the background and, and what was troubling the churches. I do think he overemphasizes the idea that, that Timothy and Titus correct falsehood because they also lay out the proper order for the church in the process of correcting any falsehood you always are teaching positively, right? So to say correcting falsehood means simultaneously teaching the truth. But beyond that, the books of Timothy and Titus have a tremendous emphasis on right living, not just right thinking. Some people uh, believe that, uh, you know, the Bible is, uh, how do I want to put it, is, you know, reticent to urge us to perform good works because they're afraid it'll lead to betrayals of the gospel and confusion and people trying to earn God's favor. And, of course, I don't want anybody to think they can earn God's favor, and I certainly don't want to betray or confuse the gospel. Nonetheless, uh, the gospel teaches us, the gospel teaches us to lead holy lives, as Titus chapter 2 says. And Paul, in the letter of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus, in those three letters, on 13 different occasions, commands the people to perform good works. 13 different occasions. And if you like, I'll, I'll give you just a list. I'm going to give you the list really fast. Uh, here we go. The emphasis on good works. One way you could do this is simply look up the phrase good works in a concordance or a Bible search you may have in your computer. But uh, just to give a couple examples, in 1 Timothy, it's found in chapter 2, verse 10, 3, 1, 5, 10, and 5, 25. That's, just, that's five in 1 Timothy. Another six in Titus, two more in 2 Timothy. But that's, that's surely more than enough uh, that you can find. The point then is this, we've got good works and good deeds both together establish the life of the church. Just differentiate a little bit between the different purposes. First Timothy is refuting error, conduct of the church. Second Timothy, just to re recapitulate. Second Timothy, especially Paul looking to the end of his life. Titus finished the work Paul started in the church in Crete. Now, the heart of what Paul drives at is this. It is vital for the leaders of the church to hold on to the truth, to know it, to read it, to proclaim it, to explain it. Hold the tradition. Hold on to the deposit, Paul says. Guard it. Add nothing to it. It's complete. Refute those who err. Uh, don't entertain myths and speculations. Don't allow anybody to teach unless they know. Don't allow anybody who's vain or ignorant to teach. They misuse the law. You hold fast. Hold fast the gospel. Hold fast the teaching that's been handed to you. That's the main idea 
that comes out over and over again. Really, just every couple paragraphs, somehow, Paul will exhort Timothy or Titus to be sure they're faithful to the gospel. Now, holding on to the gospel doesn't mean you just simply hold it. You also uh, take the offensive with the gospel. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, I'll ask you to turn there if you would, tells us how to hold on to the gospel. We don't hold on to the gospel in a quarreling or uh, self-righteous or condemning sort of way. Uh, Paul says this, The Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance and lead them to the knowledge of the truth. That's the point. Someone opposes you, instruct gently. Because, as a friend of mine says, you never win an argument. Somebody convinced against their will is unconvinced still. You never win an argument. You may win somebody's silence, but if you want to win people, you have to be gentle. And even if you're not feeling very gentle on the inside, you need to develop the skill of being gentle on the outside and controlling a sense of being upset. If somebody's saying something that's false and you think it's terrible and destructive and may hurt them, it doesn't help to emote at them and tell them they're, they're damned heretics or anything like that. If you want to... Pers- and they may, they may be terrible heretics, but it doesn't help to label them that way. Except maybe at the very end, after you've talked to them for many weeks, you may have to tell them the truth about where they stand with their ideas. But the goal is to win people by gently teaching them, right? Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. Now we're ready. We're ready for deviation. We're ready for people to be disinterested in the gospel. So we're ready to refute error. We're ready to guard the truth. We're ready to proclaim the truth uh, in season and out of season to win people to the truth. That's the broad theme that you can find many, many times in First and Second Timothy and Titus. There is a statement of it found in chapter 1, verses 12 to 17, that I'd like to look at together. First Timothy chapter 1, 12 to 17, the first central statement of the gospel there in chapter 1. I'm asking you to turn with me, and we'll look at it carefully, at times even word by word. Okay, the context, chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, is prohibition of false teachers and false doctrine, prohibition of controversy, don't let false teachers teach, and so forth. Then he gets ready to tell them what his gospel is. He says, before he does actually describe his gospel, he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength. That he considered me faithful, appointing me to this service. Even though I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying, worthy of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst begins by thanking God. He thanks God that he was appointed to service. 
He doesn't take it for granted. He doesn't complain that he's an apostle. He's thankful that he was appointed. Now, what would this appointment and this gratitude be pointing to? It's striking that Paul was appointed to be an apostle because of who he was. He was, as he says, a blasphemer. Not that Paul himself blasphemed necessarily in a direct sense of cursing God. Probably, in fact, certainly, he thought he was praising God. But it does say in Acts 26, verses 9 to 11, when Paul is on trial, he says this of himself, that he tried to force Christians to blaspheme. He tried to get Christians to curse Christ. So it's not that he himself blasphemed. That's not the issue so much as that he tried to get Christians to recant under the force of persecution. That's the point. So he was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. That, of course, is clear enough. He imprisoned Christians. He chased them from city to city. He beat them. He dragged them out of houses. Chapter 9 of Acts. Chapter 22 of Acts. Uh, He tried to eradicate the church, viewing that act even as a point of service to God. Because he thought there is one God. That's the Jewish confession. Here, O Israel, the Lord or God is one God. And here are these Christians who are saying there's another God, namely Jesus Christ. He viewed them as heretics. But he was very violent toward them. He persecuted them. Now, he also says he was violent. And the word for violent is a particular word. There, you know, in every language there are different words. Uh, a number of you would, would know the word hubrist, hubris, which means uh, overweening pride and is considered one of the great uh, faults or flaws since antiquity uh, that someone can have. And he uses that word. He actually uses a different form of it. The word he uses is dace, which means someone who acted violently without regard for others. He acted with complete disregard for the consequences of his violence on other people. He acted, it was a proud sort of violence. It was, a, it was self-assured violence that he exercised, he's saying. Nonetheless, you would, you, would, you would think, of course, that this would completely disqualify Paul for service. Paul himself seems to, seems to think the same thing himself. But he says, despite all this, he became an apostle because, he gives a reason, I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Now, what does that mean? He acted in ignorance. Well, above all, it means he didn't know what he was doing. In Acts chapter 9, when Paul meets Christ in the road to Damascus, his first words are, do you know what they are? Who are you, Lord? He doesn't know who he is. He's ignorant. He didn't know what he was doing. He didn't know that Christ was indeed, that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the anointed one, uh, very God. Now, the Bible has a little running theme on this. It's a minor theme, but a real theme, and that is that deliberate sins are different from accidental sins. A deliberate sin is more damaging. For example, Numbers chapter 15 describes deliberate sins and the punishment for sins with a high hand, as some translations say. And and Jesus warns against blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which seems to be cursing or neglecting the work of the Holy Spirit in a knowing way. Deliberately having seen what the Spirit can do, who Christ is, then rejecting it. That's different from a sin of ignorance. Now, a sin of ignorance is still a sin. But there's this difference, and that is that a sin of ignorance is not hard-hearted. You're doing the wrong thing, but you don't know you're doing the wrong thing. You're not thumbing your nose at God. You're not saying, well, I know what God says, but I don't care. That's a difference. So that your heart, you might say, is more soft before the Lord. 
So how is ignorance of, of what he was doing an excuse? Let me use a simple analogy. Suppose, for whatever reason, that you are on a trip, you're on a mission trip, let's say, and you're intent on going to, uh, oh, you know, Zanzibar or Hungary, some places, traffic laws I don't know. Let's suppose in these two countries, uh, you drive on the left side of the road. And you know that. You're going there and you're ready and you're, you know, you're geared up and you're, you're just being real careful driving the left side of the road. And then you're, you arrive late at night. Let's suppose your traffic, your, your, your flight gets in at, at uh, midnight, hardly any traffic in the roads. Here's a, a red light and proudly, just, nobody's around, totally deserved, but you stop at that red light, turns green, you go through, and uh, sure enough, somebody comes up a few seconds later with their police car light on, they stop you and they pull you over and they say, sir or ma'am, in their finest uh, English, or maybe you've learned their language, what are you doing driving through a green light? You say, well, you know, it's a green light, green means go, red means stop, I'm stopping in the red and going on a green. And I'm doing my best to master your rules here. I'm driving on the left side of the road faithfully. It's a real challenge for me. And the officer says, no. In Zanzibar or in Hungary, we stop for the green and we go for the red. Now, if you made that mistake, thinking sincerely you were doing the right thing by going through the green light, what are the chances that the next green light you came to, now that you've just been informed, you would stop? They're extremely high, aren't they? Because your traffic violation was entirely accidental. You thought you were doing the right thing. You're bent on the right thing. If, on the other hand, if, on the other hand, you're in America, and you I'll give you a scenario that is a little bit old by now. I'll give you one that's really old. Let's go back to Christian colleges or colleges that had curfews. And, and the men did not... It was, a, it was a period. This is actually true. There was a period... There's a pre period when everybody had a curfew. Then there's a period when nobody had a curfew. But there's a brief period in between when women had curfews but men didn't. Okay? During this period, you had to get the girl back to the dorm. All right? Let's suppose that for whatever reason the curfew is 1 a.m. and the girl is not going to make it back to the dorm. You've got six miles to go. You've got five minutes and you've got 14 red lights. Now, the truth is it is 1 a.m. And so, if you hit every light green and drove 80 miles an hour, you might make it, right? Now, let's suppose that you come to the first of those 14 lights, and they're not synchronized well, and the streets are deserted, and you say, you know, I've got to get this girl back home. I want to, you know, don't want to get her in trouble. I want to go out on a date with her. And so, you just, you say, you know, not only am I going to go through all these lights, but I might as well just get it over with. And you just, you just zoom through town. And you cruise through 14 lights, of which nine are red, at an average speed of 80 miles an hour. The policeman pulls you over. Now, let's just, what do you think the chances are that if you did that, you had also broken a variety of other traffic laws earlier, and no matter how you were scared by the cop or otherwise, you would probably do it again. What do you think? Anybody who can run through 14 lights at once... Has probably been working up to it for a while. <laughs> and they're probably not going to eradicate it in one shot because it's deliberate. They knew exactly what they were doing. So what Paul is saying is, I didn't know what I was doing. And for that reason, I was more open to correction. It's more open to be turned around by the Lord. Ignorance is not an excuse, but it explains why 
Paul could be called back to the Lord. It really was an amazing thing, wasn't it? Now then he gives this faithful staying about his coming to salvation and how uh, he began to become an apostle. He says he wants to get our attention. If I'm trying to help you become better readers of the New Testament, I want to urge you to notice the things that highlight or underline. And when we get an introductory formula, that's a good underline. So here you go in verse 15. It says, here is a trustworthy saying. In other words, here comes something important. He doesn't say that very much. And then he adds, it, it's worthy of full acceptance. So it's a double introductory formula. Here comes something very important. And here it is. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Now just even each part, Christ Jesus. Here Jesus is treated with his title first. Messiah Jesus, the anointed one. Jesus. The word Jesus means Savior. The anointed Savior. The anointed Savior came. Now that little word came in this context implies Jesus' pre-existence and his purpose. It ties into a group of sayings called the I came sayings of the gospel. Where the Son of Man came. I did not come to seek and to save. Who did he come to seek? Not the healthy, but the sick. I came... Jesus says to cast fire in the earth. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. He came. He came to seek and to save. It was lost, he tells Zacchaeus. Jesus came, entered this world with his purpose. He entered the world. Now, there are three words in the Bible for the earth, for this planet. One word, I'm going to give you three Greek words. One word is gay, not G-A-Y, but like a G-A, long A, gay. It's the word for earth in Greek. We could say the first word is earth. When he uses the word earth, when the New Testament uses the word earth, it means the world, it has the connotation of the, the earth, the good earth, as God created it. God's creature. And there's another word. It's just sort of the earth as creation. There's another word that means, it's just all in one word, the inhabited world. The inhabited world. Oikomene is the word. And, and that means the earth as populated by the cultures and the tribes and the peoples. And it often has the connotation, or usually has the connotation, of all the people of the earth as they basically forget God as they look at their own culture and their own self-sufficiency, kind of like the city of Babel. You know, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's take care of ourselves. We don't want to scatter over the earth and have to trust God. Let's take care of ourselves here in our city. And then the third word is the word that's used here, the word world. And here again, it's, it's closer to the word inhabited world. It's the sphere of humanity in its normal life and its neediness to some extent, without regard for God. Sort of the world in its daily life, not thinking of God very much or not relating to God. Christ Jesus came into the world, just where people are and they're needy. It's nothing special, nothing glamorous, just into this world, this world of daily life. One way of putting it is, is just to think about how Jesus got from here to there and how Abraham did and so forth, but especially Jesus. When he wanted to go from point A to point B, he... Walk. 
And if he was riding in anything, it was a donkey, not a chariot, not a camel, not a charger, a donkey. He came just like an ordinary person traveling like ordinary people do. If Jesus came today and he was ministering by some happenstance, not that we should assume he would be interested, but if he chose, for whatever reason, to minister in America and was going up and down the East Coast, I believe that Jesus and the apostles would be going up and down the East Coast in a couple of ten-year-old uh, Plymouth caravans, or Dodge caravans or Plymouth boards, some van, you know. And you have about six or seven of them, and Peter and James and John would always be calling out, I got shotgun, and just, you know, fighting for that front seat, and everybody would be envying each other, to, you know, who gets near the air conditioning vent, and... and uh, that's just ordinary daily life. That's where he came. Christ Jesus came into the world. And it's ordinariness. He came into the world to save. Now that word save doesn't just mean the day of salvation. It means globally. He came to save. The word save sometimes means the day of salvation. But most of the time it means the life of the redeemed. He came to give us a new life. He came to save sinners. Describing humans in their state of neediness, in their state of offense. And then he adds this. Of whom I am the worst. That's your translation. Another translation, curiously enough, could be of whom I am the foremost. The word that he uses literally is of whom I am the first, the chief. I think it's a very interesting statement for a couple reasons. Number one, he doesn't say I was the worst. He says, I am the worst. It would have been very easy for Paul to say, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I was the worst. Because he was really bad. He was a violator of God's people, a blasphemer, a violent man, a persecutor. He doesn't do that anymore. Now he's an apostle. He's giving himself to the Lord's work. But he makes a very important move that people don't get nowadays. He did not distance himself from his past. He didn't say... That wasn't me. That was another person who did that 20 years ago. Hear people talk about past crimes and misdemeanors. If it's 20 years old, it's like I didn't do it. It happened through an agency that was inhabiting my body. I'm not responsible for that. I was just young. I didn't know any better. Paul doesn't do that. Even though he was even an unbeliever at the time. He says, that was me. It is me. I don't deny it. I don't separate from my sin. Maybe he's also thinking about his own current sin. Why would he be thinking about that? He's such a holy man. Because our own sin should always loom largest in our eyes. Jesus says, take the speck out of your own eye. Take the log out of your own eye before you remove the speck from a brother. We should be hardest on ourselves. Then we can be hard on others. We should, because we know our own bad motives most clearly. We know the anger. Somebody will say to you, oh, you handled that so admirably. And you say, well, I guess I got lucky because I sure didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> you know, you stayed so calm. Oh, really? Must have fooled you. Now, we know the truth about ourselves. And we should be more, not that we should be hard on ourselves in the abstract and just be down on ourselves. We shouldn't excuse ourselves and deny the sin that called Christ to become our Redeemer. Verse 16 describes a little further and says, But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me the worst of sinners 
the foremost of sinners, Christ might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. For those of you who are gospel ministers, you will encounter people, you know this, who over your years of ministry, whether you're formally or informally in ministry, you will encounter people who think, well, you know, they'll say to you, you know, the gospel is great and Christianity is great, but it's not for me. I'm too evil. God could never love me. If, if you knew what I've done, you wouldn't say God loves me. You wouldn't say I could be a member of the family of God. And, of course, what you have to say to them is, well, maybe I don't know, but God does. And it's not me that's saying God loves you. He's the one who said. And the encouragement here would be to look at the case of, of Paul. Now, election... It's not based on our merit or on anything God choosing us or calling us. It's not based on our goodness or what God sees our ability to do more for him. But God's election of sinners, God's choosing of sinners, is not unreasoned. There is a reason, not in Paul, but there's a reason in God for choosing Paul. And the reason God had in mind, nothing in Paul, but was to make a demonstration that God's love and God's mercy can extend to anyone. If God's love and mercy could extend to Paul, a man dedicated to extirpation of the church, then to whom could that love not go? In fact, if you think about it with me for a moment, you probably would agree that there were probably Christians who were busily praying that God would remove Saul. Right? Don't you think? During those years, judge him, strike him down, kill him, remove him, prayers like that. Maybe some good discerning Christians prayed, save him, redeem him. But, you know, probably, probably most of them weren't thinking so nobly, I'm going to guess, unless they were more noble than people are today. But God removed Saul, the persecutor, in a way better than most of those people would have imagined by making him one of their own. Uh, back during the time, about 100 years ago, there was a great, great theologian, Dutch theologian named Abraham Kuyper. Who, he was quite a guy, actually. And if you ever have a chance to read some of his stuff, I would commend it to you. He, let's see, what, he, what, did, what did Abraham Kuyper do? He was a pastor. He was also a uh, newspaper editor. He also started a university. It's one of the major universities in, in Holland to this day. He also started a political party. He also gained office as a representative. He also became prime minister. He also wrote about 20 books, some of which are worth reading, very much worth reading to this day. So because he was a theologian and in politics, he gets into some things, he thinks about things that other people didn't. Uh, by the way, don't be discouraged by him. He had, you know, he had an IQ of 227, so you know, don't, don't bother to envy or anything. He just, whatever you have and I have, he had more. So, uh, and he, you know, he's one of these people that comes along once in a long time. Uh, but he used a little analogy about what God does when he converts a great sinner, a tremendous sinner, a big sinner, a bold sinner, a powerful sinner like Paul. He said, you know, when you're in war, and of course he had to think about these things because he was a politician, when you're in war, you think sometimes that the greatest thing you could do is to sink the battleships of your adversary, to put them at the bottom of the ocean. And that's not true, though. The greatest thing you can do to your adversary is to convince the captain of the strongest, the greatest ship to defect to your side. That's the greatest thing you can do. 
Because you don't take away simply their greatest ship. You take away their greatest ship and you add the greatest ship to your side. That's a victory. And that's what God did with Paul. He took a terrible, powerful agent of Satan and evil and he brought it over to the side of good. And if God could do that with Paul, Saul, then he can do that with anybody. That's the gospel. That's the hope that we hold out to every sinner. And that's what Paul says the Lord wanted to display through his life. And then he gives the word of praise. Now the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God be glory and honor forever and ever. That's the gospel according to Paul as articulated in the book of 1 Timothy. Let me say a personal word to you about staying faithful and how we stay faithful to this gospel. All kinds of ideas, but let me just give you one or two that could be grounded in what, uh, in what Paul says to Timothy and Titus. Beware when everyone loves you. Beware when you are too popular. We must please God rather than men. And since men don't always agree, to understate the matter gravely, since men don't always agree with God's truth and God's agenda, to please God means to displease man and woman many times. Popularity can lead, the quest for popularity can lead to ear-tickling betrayal. 2 Timothy 4.3 says, For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. To suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. The gospel has a certain antithetical nature. It says no. Some people sometimes have said to me, you know, I had a conversation with an unbeliever, you know, Christianity is such a negative religion. It's always saying no. You know, that's true. Eight of the ten commandments are negative. Two positive, honor your father and your mother, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The rest of them say no. Don't bow down to foreign idols. Don't have other gods. Don't commit adultery. Don't covet. Don't steal. Don't lie. Because we're kind of like kids. We need to be told no. Your way is wrong. And our thoughts are, are wrong unless we're corrected. And you have to be willing to say no. If you try to meet people's felt needs, to use the language that some people use from time to time, you will meet the wrong needs. People don't know what their needs are. Very often. Sometimes they do. But you can't assume that an unbeliever, an unregenerate person, knows what he or she really needs. They need enlightenment even to know what their problem is, let alone to see what the solution is. A few years ago, my family and I were on vacation. Our families live in Pennsylvania. And we, when we lived toward the east, we never lived in the east coast. When we lived toward the east, we used to go to the ocean pretty regularly. And we'd been in St. Louis a couple of years, a few years, and we said, you know, we've got to get to the ocean. We're going to be near Grandma and Grandpa, and it's only four more hours to the ocean. we just got to go to the ocean and just feel it again. We drove a long time through that day on the way east, and we got to the room we had uh, rented at about 10 o'clock at night. My kids were younger. It's maybe four or five years ago by now. And my wife, you know, one of those strange things, my wife was tired out by driving with me. I don't know what that means. But anyway, she, I drove, so she was tired. And, you know, she went to bed, my kids went to bed, and come on to bed, you're so tired, it had been raining for, you know, eight hours. 
on the road. I said, no, I haven't been to the ocean for about three years. I've got to go. So I walked over. It was about 10 o'clock. And if you go to the northern parts of, of the eastern seaboard, at 10 o'clock, there's still a little light around June 21st, the tail end of June. It's still a little bit of light uh, because you're north enough and you're far enough east in the zone. It just works out that way. There's a time late at night when the sky, the horizon, and the water meet. And you can barely tell where one ends and the other begins. You know that time? Where the sea is charcoal gray, and the sky is charcoal gray too, but it has just a touch of blue in it. And you can see that line, and that's the difference. And I was out there just watching. Just watching. And the, and the, the wind was about 30 miles an hour, just whipping up the waves and throwing the sea foam all over the place. And I was just getting drenched and exulting in the beauty and the frighteningness of the vast roaring ocean as the last bits of daylight ended. And I walked for 20 minutes, and then I realized I had not seen one person for 20 minutes on the beach, on the edge of the beach. I looked over. I'd been transfixed by this. I looked over hundreds of yards away, clearly audible and visible because there was nothing else to see or hear, at the boardwalk. And there was an arcade. There were games, video games and bumper cars. And you could distantly hear the people dinging and pinging and banging. And there were people there, 10.30, quarter 11 by now or thereabouts. And I, I, I was, it just made me wonder, why would you want to play bumper cars and try to win a free game on a, on a pinball machine when you could be out here with this? What's wrong with those people? Those people who think that... that you know, frozen yogurt passes for profound as opposed to French fries. You know, that's, that's low grade, but I, I eat frozen yogurt and I'm, I'm sophisticated. Why aren't more people here? Now, the good news is shortly after that, I, I met about five and then three more and then six more and, and I was encouraged. But, you know, the truth is that most people don't really know where they should be. They don't know what they should want. The people that are eating pizza and playing bumper cars didn't know that they wanted the wrong thing. They thought that bumper cars are entertaining. And in a way, I guess they are. Maybe the ocean's too frightening. It's too big for them. Maybe the truth of the gospel's too frightening. Too big. Maybe thinking about God is too scary. But it is what people should do. People don't know what they need. And if you pander, I'll use that word, if you pander to people's needs, you will very likely be leading them away from their true needs. To be disabused of their agendas. That's part of what the gospel is. To say to people, I'm not even answering your question, because it's a bad question. I'm not even interested in your question. And you can't say it like that. You have to steer them. You have to think in your mind. I'm not going to answer their question because it's the wrong question. Part of instruction is helping people realize what the right questions are. Uh, one more I want to say to you. Um, I don't know if I've used it here or not. If I have, forgive me. It's important as teachers that you, might, that you must be willing to dare to be boring. Dare to be boring means, have I used it before with you? Dare to be boring means not... 
to make people yawn and feel how tedious and I can't wait till he's done talking. But rather, dare to be repetitive. Dare to say it again. Dare to not seek originality. Dare to say the gospel and its basic truths of Christian loving the nature of God over and over again. That is to say, dare to bore yourself, if I can put it that way. Don't always seek to put another way. Don't seek to be novel. Don't seek to be new and always creating something. If you think of something that no one ever thought of before, it's probably wrong. There's a slim chance you're right, but you probably aren't. Probably 10 or 20 great people considered that idea and rejected it. And they probably had seven good reasons for it. If it's true, it's probably already been discovered. As speakers, I've noticed as speakers, you could categorize them as having one of two fears. Besides the fear of forgetting what they mean to say and so on. Some speakers are afraid of failing to state the fundamentals. You can see them painstakingly stating the basics. Even though maybe almost everybody knows the basics. Other speakers are afraid that they won't say anything new. Which is a better fear? Probably the first one's better. Probably a lot of people here, I'll say, for me, I'm, if you ask me not right or wrong, but the truth, I'm probably more afraid I won't say something new. I don't think it's a good fear. It's better to be afraid of fa failing with regard to the fundamentals. So that's the gospel. That's the heritage uh, that we're given in uh, the pastoral epistles describing the way in which the church ought to conduct itself. 1 Timothy 2 starts the vexed question of proper role relationships in the church. I'm going to get to chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, but I want to talk about 8 to 15 more prominently here and see how we should interpret it correctly. Now, there is a phrase in 1 Timothy chapter 2, which is the core of it all, which says, A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. Now, there it is. It's just that bald. The Bible says it. And you know, it, that's offensive to some people, isn't it? Is it offensive to some people even here? I'm not asking you to raise your hands. But I know that it is. I know that it's got to rub some people the wrong way. And in our contemporary setting, people approach those plain words in different ways. By and large, Christian feminists say... This teaching, woman must be silent, can't teach and exercise authority, no longer applies to the church. That's the basic line. There it is, but things have changed somehow. Setting has changed, society has changed, views of women have changed, something has changed, so that it doesn't mean what it says. We don't have to literally do that or live that way anymore. The feminist says, we have to guide ourselves by the whole of Scripture. Christian feminists, now I'm not talking about radical feminists, I'm talking about our... Christian brothers and sisters here. This is not. This is a. This is a, within the family of God. I'm talking about a debate. The Christian feminists let's say we have to base our teaching on all the Bible, and in the rest of the Bible we have things like Huld the prophetess and Deborah the judge, and we have Miriam and Hannah and Judea uh, and Syntyche and Junius, all doing the work of helping establish the church or teaching wonderful things that are found in Scripture. 
And so it's clear, they say to us, that a woman may teach and may have leadership functions in the church. I understand that, and uh, I wanted to say to you candidly that everything I say has to be um, kind of put in a little context. The context is I'm a father of three daughters and no sons. And there was a period a couple of years ago when, in a very short span of time, two of my three kids, girls now, asked about, you know, kind of going into the ministry. What would that be like, Dad? I will also tell you that my mother is an ordained minister. And we are not estranged over it. I love my mom. She loves me. We have a real good relationship. We write letters. We talk on the phone. We disagree on a few points. You know? But we still love each other. Okay? So I don't have an axe to, to grind. And there are other members of my family who, are, who I would call Christian feminists. And I have a wide variety of friends and a few enemies that I would call feminists. I don't really have any enemies, do I? I don't think so. But I do have a number of other friends who are Christian feminists. So this is not, you know, uh, I'm not taking this position. I'll, I'll tell you one more. And that is that I grew up in a denomination that ordained women. So this is not a view that I take because I grew up and, you know, and I want to hold on to power and I'm against women or something like that. This is a view that I hold because of conviction. Okay? I'm not teaching this because it's necessary to teach this if I want to hold on to my job. Although that's true. <laughs> that's not the reason why I do it. The truth is that I'm in the PCA because I believe what it stands for. It's not an accident. I grew up in another church. I'm here by conviction. And uh, certainly not out of meanness or disregard for women. Actually, I mean, I'm married to one and I have household. Of... So it's not a matter of personal uh, prejudice. Okay. Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 3, are telling us how we should conduct ourselves in the household of God. They're about the order in the church. And we should look for principles for the order of the church, the conduct uh, of the house of God in this part of the scriptures. Again, just very briefly, the context is purity of doctrine, chapter 1, and then purity of government, we might say, chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, are really about prayer. And it's a little bit of a non sequitur. You could think at first of chapter 1 is about avoiding falsehood and false doctrine. Chapter 2 says, I urge you therefore, that's a literal translation, I urge you therefore that requests and prayers, intercession, thanksgiving be made to everyone for kings and those in authority and so forth. You might think, how exactly is prayer a therefore after a chapter on doctrine, which we just finished? I think the answer is this. When we look at false doctrine... Paul does not say right away, therefore fight, therefore rebuke, therefore refute. He says, therefore pray. Because really, the greatest antidote to false teaching is prayer. Again, you can argue and persuade, and you may win somebody, but unless God is in it, no one is going to be persuaded. So men should pray. That's the start of the antidote to false teaching. Now, that's not the only antidote. There are other antidotes, for, among other things, choosing good leaders, knowing the gospel. But prayer is one of those means. I also believe that this section, 
is, uh, is about chapter 2. That's all I'm going to say about 2, 1 to 7. Chapter 2, 1 to 15, especially 8 to 15, but really the whole of chapter 2 in here, is about the public life of the church. Chapter 3 is about the public officers of the church. Chapter 1 is about the doctrine that the church must always maintain. So it makes sense that since 1 and 3 are big structural issues, that chapter 2 would be also. Furthermore, there's a clue or two that he's talking about public worship here. One clue is that he says in verse 8, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. That word men, you know, there's two words for men in Greek. One is the word for mankind type men. In English, the word men means males and it means males and females, right? Most languages aren't like that. More common, there's other languages like that, but more languages don't have that problem. Most languages have a word that covers men and women, humanity, mankind, humankind. Even in those, the word man is buried, as feminists point out, and it's humanity, mankind, and so on. But um, there's the word for people, and then there's the word for males. The word here in verse 8 is the word for males. Says, he says, I want males everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. It's probably a reference to the custom of time that said that men, males, should lead in prayer, especially in the synagogue. Now, of course, we know from elsewhere, from 1 Corinthians, that women can pray in church. But the basic uh, idea he's giving right here is males should lead in prayer. Verse 9, he talks specifically about women and what women must do. And it makes sense to read verse 9 as a warning to women who, back then and maybe even today, you can decide for yourself, uh, maybe had a tendency to draw attention to themselves in a worship service by dressing up very finely. But I think that ended in about the 19th century, didn't it? That's not a problem anymore, is it? I don't know. You have to decide that for yourself. Um, it does appear, if I can be real blunt about this, that Paul is doing a little bit of stereotyping. He's maybe pointing out a problem to which men are heir, uh, that is, anger and disputation. He says, men, don't get angry, don't dispute, pray. That's your role. You ever, you know, don't men run around denouncing more than women do? Telling how horrible things are, ranting, railing. Do men do that more than women? You decide. Do women tend to draw attention to themselves by their clothes a little bit more than men do? Seems like Paul has that in mind. But I wouldn't want to stereotype, so you decide that one too. Verses 8 and 9 seem to be about then the ways in which men and women can go wrong in worship settings and the ways in which they should stay right. There's another thing I'll just point out to you here. You have to trust me on Greek again. I urge men uh, everywhere. That little word everywhere is literally in every place. And the word place is kind of, again, a special word for place. The word place is, is often a, um, a metaphor or shorthand for place of worship. So he says, I want men to lift their hands in every place. He means every place of worship. So it looks like we're talking about the public worship of God. Also, the term that's used for teach here is a word that describes the formal teaching of the church. Not just anybody teaching anybody anything, uh, but teaching the doctrine, teaching the essence of the faith. So I take it that 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 15, where it does indeed teach a woman should learn quietly, is about the public life of the church and the way in which the church should be ordered 
as a part of its life, its conduct of life, as a part of its preservation of true doctrine. First Timothy chapter 2, verses uh, 8 to 15 are the essence of what we're looking at. We kind of set it up a little bit and come to the basic question now, and that is how much of what we read in this text is, is fundamental and the Lord's will for all churches in all ages, and how much is temporary and only a matter of teaching that held for a particular day? That's the question. Christian feminists, our Christian, my Christian sisters, Christian feminists say passage does not apply literally today. The Christian feminist says it's kind of like greet one another with a holy kiss. We don't do that anymore. They say it's kind of like Jesus telling his disciples, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Or telling his disciples, don't go to the Samaritans, go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Things change. Times change. Not just culture, but God's will is administered and his, his truth is administered in different ages. So that we, we don't disregard greeting one another with a holy kiss. We, we practice it differently by greeting each other with a handshake or by calling each other by name, or looking each other in the eye, and so forth. And they'd say, you know, there was a day when women should not teach or exercise authority, but that day is gone. Especially, they would point out, a passage like Galatians 3, 26 to 28. And maybe we could even turn to that, which is a kind of a, an arch text for Christian feminists. It reads, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized, sorry, all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Now here's the crucial statement. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And they say there it is. All the differentiation between men and women is gone, just as the differentiation between uh, you know Jew and Greek, slave and free. He doesn't say it, but we can draw the conclusion so also it is between male and female. That's how they reason. They say then that Paul's teaching a woman should not exercise authority in the church was an interim measure given for four reasons. 